on music, the podcast dedicated to in-depth engagement with the world of sound. Brought to you by Haus der Kulturen der Welt in Berlin. How can we talk about music? About rhythms and sounds that break with pre-existing norms? that explore the open space beyond rigid structures, that defy description? How can we talk about jazz? About the inventive spirits of John Coltrane and Miles Davis and how their music affected the cultural landscape. Michael E. Veal searches for new forms of apprehension and expression in deconstruction and collapse, in the most hazardous forms of architecture and in the blur of experimental photography. The following is a synesthetic experiment, an audio play on how visual metaphors allow us to write about things that are overlooked. Living space, free jazz through the prisms of architecture and photography. Chapter one, structure and meter, creating a dialogue between jazz and architecture. The context of free jazz in the 1960s was civil rights, black power, the space race, the Cold War, a general ethos of experimentation, independence in Africa and elsewhere in the non-Western world. So these were the big picture factors that these musicians and other musicians, in fact, all musicians were responding to in their various ways. And it manifested in their various musical choices, ranging from everything from particular scale types to song titles to ways of performing to performance contexts. It was a very open, experimental, politicized mood, and that was reflected in the music of these musicians. Michael E. Veal is an ethnomusicologist and professor at Yale University. His research focuses on aesthetics, technology, and politics within the cultural sphere of Africa and the African diaspora. In his forthcoming book, Living Space, John Coltrane, Miles Davis, and Free Jazz, From Analog to Digital. Veal establishes a new language to describe the late music of John Coltrane and of Miles Davis's Lost Quintet by approaching it through the structural principles of architecture and photography. For example, you take a musician like John Coltrane. Once he started his own band, he began to play a type of jazz that's typically referred to as modal jazz, meaning that the music tends to be strongly oriented around a single tonal center with certain types of harmonies played on top. And that music carried certain associations. For example, with Indian classical music, it carried associations with certain forms of sub-Saharan African music, carried associations with certain forms of Middle Eastern music, and it also carried associations with liturgical music played in the African-American church. And that 
allowed the music to have an aura on it of politics because it was resonant with the changes taking place around the decolonizing world. And it also allowed the music to have resonances of spirituality because, of course, the Indian traditions, the classical traditions, are devotional traditions, at least historically they're devotional traditions. And the African-American sacred traditions are, of course, devotional traditions also, religious, spiritual. That allowed John Coltrane's music of the 1960s to have very strong political and spiritual resonances and auras. I think what's interesting about number one is that it demonstrates that John Coltrane had a concept in mind that he was going for during the last two years of his life. People often dismiss that music as chaotic and disorganized, but in fact there was a concept that Coltrane was trying to achieve and it took him a couple of years to achieve it. And so I think number one is a great example of the kind of rhythmic sense that he created within this free meter environment. I actually use the term curvilinear. Rhythmically, it's a curvilinear environment that he creates very flowing rhythmic contours on this piece, number one. It's a very good example of what John Coltrane did rhythmically within the style of free jazz. Anarchitecture denotes a method of composition which feeds off the vibratory tension between contrasting occasions. A rhythmic anarchitecture is amodal and atemporal. Rhythm proper cannot be perceived purely via the five senses, but is crucially transsensory or even nonsensuous. Luciana Parisi, cultural theorist, and Steve Goodman, musician. The traditional language of music theory, or even the traditional language of jazz theory, it doesn't tend to be a very sophisticated language if we want to deal with the phenomenon of rhythm, especially when you move into so-called free meter music, which in a certain way of hearing is much more complicated. I needed a language that I could use to discuss that music and make it vivid in the mind of the reader. And because I've been very interested in architecture for several decades, especially architecture of the digital age, I decided that I would use imagery and terminology of digital architecture as explanatory or interpretive analytical metaphors for my musical discussion of free jazz. And in fact, the uh, architects of the digital age, people like Greg Lynn, Peter Eisenman, Zaha Hadid, and Patrick Schumacher, they've often been described as theorists of instability. We might also think of the Austrian architect Koop Himmelblau, based in Vienna. Their famous rooftop remodeling project is actually what inspired me to pursue this line of thinking.
I don't think this music has influenced the architecture of the past or the present. In fact, one could argue that the jazz musicians and the architects were investigating similar conceptual principles and structural principles in different artistic media. And unfortunately, the architects, for various sociocultural reasons, at least in the United States, don't understand the jazz as a source of concepts that would be relevant to their work. So one thing I'm trying to do in this book is to bring the two discourses into dialogue, the discourse of music and the discourse of architecture, so that conceptual connections between them can be evident. And maybe then in the future, the architects can understand the extent to which modernity has been predicated on many of the sonic principles of black music. Instead of Schelling's description of architecture as frozen music, we're looking for an architecture more like some modern music, jazz, or poetry, where improvisation plays a part, an indeterminate architecture containing both permanence and transformation. Richard Rogers, Architect. Chapter two, living shapes, living spaces on deconstructing and generating forms of expression. A lot of these architects were interested in moving beyond the, the forms and shapes of architectural modernism, which I guess in practical terms means that they were interested in moving beyond square forms and rectilinear forms. They also, in many cases, were interested in imparting a sense of motion and transformation to these built structures. They wanted to make buildings that seemed as if they were in the midst of collapse or if they were in the midst of exploding or if they were in the midst of melting and being liquefied or if they were in the midst of flowing into the general environment beyond the physical bounds of the building. Now, of course, the buildings were still discrete structures. It was just a stylistic choice. It was, And of course, this reflects the influence of deconstruction and post-structuralism and all of those modes of thinking. These architects have often been described as theorists of instability. There was a lot in their work in terms of imagery and language that could be used to help reconceptualize free meter spaces in terms of shapes and surfaces. A musician should be a manufacturer of philosophical theses and global systems of architecture, of combinations of structures, forms, and different kinds of sound matter. Yanis Xenakis, composer and architect. What can be achieved by deconstruction fundamentally is the generation of new forms, new structures. If you're talking specifically about the issue of free meter, what was achieved was a more complex, more elastic, more fluid, rhythmic field. One might argue that that resonated with the general mood in American society 
and especially among African Americans, who, of course, we were in the midst of our own liberation struggle at that time, civil rights and black power. And there are many musicians of that time that say that they were trying to move beyond constraints, including rhythmic constraints, including the constraints of meter, repetitive meter, cyclical meter. And one of the ways they did that was to do away with meter altogether and create music in a completely free rhythmic feel that was untethered from any underlying beat or underlying pulse. They weren't trying to make dance music. Jazz had historically been dance music. They were now trying to make a music that resonated with the space age, as well as with the uh, political freedoms that were being fought for. What's distinctive about the Lost Quintet is that it represents Miles Davis's foray into free jazz, which was a, a style of music that he really had a lot of negative things to say about when he gave his press interviews. In fact, what we see in 1969 is that he was willing to engage with that form of music as long as it was played by musicians that he respected. And so what we have in the Lost Quintet is a period of Miles' own engagement with free jazz. And it actually produced some pretty incredible results. This band, this quintet that Miles led during this period, it was often referred to as the Lost Quintet. And the reason that it's referred to as the Lost Quintet is because they never recorded a formal studio album. So they're lost to the recorded history of jazz, in a sense. Of course, there were many recordings, or at least several recordings made of this band, but they were made in live performances, and most of them were just made by audience members or television networks. And these recordings have circulated over the decade in varying levels of fidelity, sometimes reasonable fidelity, and sometimes quite poor, quite challenging fidelity. So I wanted a language that would help me get into these recordings and narrate them as sound objects or as pieces of sound art. I wanted to take them at face value as opposed to understanding them as flawed or disfigured or inferior recordings. And the history of photography, there's a lot there that can be used to, to help narrate these different modes of audio fidelity. Because photography itself as a field essentially evolved via a series of accidents, darkroom discoveries, different types of printing formats, different types of papers, different types of developing procedures. It developed in a very haphazard and experimental way. And in fact, the accidents were what contributed to the evolution of the form. And so I draw on photographers such as the Czech photographer Joseph Sudek, or contemporary Czech photographer Miroslav Tichy, an Italian contemporary photographer, Monica Carocci, a modernist American photographer named Louis Stettner, Ray Metzger, even someone like a canonized figure like Henri Cartier-Bresson, some of his work. There's a lot in the aesthetics and language and the concepts of photography that can be used to think through audio fidelity. From the inception of jazz, you had identifiable musical phrases, songs, melodies. 
When you get to bebop, you start to feel an abstract relationship to melody and figures. But then you get to free jazz, and you start talking about a blurred figure, a figure that isn't so discreetly defined as a figure against a background. You start talking about the slow shutter speed. Arthur Jaffa, artist. Living Space was the title of a piece that Coltrane recorded in 1965, and he was inspired by a science fiction novella of the same name that was authored by Isaac Asimov. Isaac Asimov used his own short story, Living Space, to kind of give a different inflection on the old Nazi policy of Lebensraum. Isaac Asimov took that idea and transposed it into outer space to talk about an overcrowded Earth of which the citizens desired to create dimensional portals so that they could populate other planets or other spheres. I don't think Coltrane was familiar with the Nazi resettlement policy, but he had read the Asimov story, and I think that's what inspired him to give his piece that title. Distortion is the idea that I use to get at these varying fidelities. John Coltrane's tenor saxophone sound was very distorted in one way of hearing, with a lot of alternate sound production techniques, multiphonics, overtones, harmonics, alternate fingerings. It was a very rough, coarse, distorted sound that he was going for at times. Miles Davis, during this period of the Lost Quintet, integrated the Fender Rhodes electric piano into his sound, and Chick Corea, who played that instrument, also distorted that instrument. The 1960s is when we see the advent of commercially available distortion devices for electric guitars and keyboards and other electric instruments, not to mention the sounds being produced by electronic synthesizers. So distortion, thickly textured sounds, were a very prominent part of the soundscape of the 1960s. And so I use the idea of distortion kind of across the board to deal with sounds produced by instruments, but also as a way of thinking through the variable fidelities of these audio recordings.
Disruption takes the form of architectural hair. Or the face become color field, skin become fabric, whose broken, undulate, textural surface defies livery's insistent flattening and aggressive looks constructed by the unseen. It's hard not to believe that we are byproducts of a theory of the beautiful. Fred Moten, cultural theorist and poet. The idea of sound in society as mutually constituted is basically an ethnomusicological idea. But in this case, I think I'm working with more speculative ideas. I mean, it would be very difficult to draw a direct and causal connection between a certain type of sound and a certain cultural sensibility. There are times in which we can do that within very established traditions of very established ways of manipulating sound. The idea of uh, drawing a, a direct causal connection between a certain type of sound and a certain cultural sensibility is very speculative and imaginistic. I would want to try to draw a one-to-one correlation. I mean, there are people like the French economist Jacques Attali, his book Noise from 1977. In that book, Attali argued that noise was a kind of harbinger of an incipient social order, kind of a harbinger future developments in society, that distortion meant that there was an unsettling energy in society, and that was a beacon for change. Free jazz was the first attempt to express in economic terms the refusal of the cultural alienation inherent in repetition, to use music to build a new culture. What institutional politics trapped within representation could not do, what violence crushed by counterviolence could not achieve, free jazz tried to bring about in a gradual way through the production of a new music outside of the industry. Jacques Attali, economist and writer. Simple way of thinking about it, distortion would be texture. Surface textures of various kinds. In a more complex way of thinking about it, the idea of distortion can be applied to form. I'm thinking of something like Peter Eisenman's I'll take a office building in which you have two rectangles juxtaposed at 90 degree, you know, at a right angle. And then the corners are sheared off so that the top gradually collapses onto the bottom. And you have this kind of complicated, chaotic shape that results. That act of deconstruction, of compression, could also be thought of as a form of distortion in the sense of distortions of form distortions of structure. Free jazz is something that was intimately connected to that cultural, political, historical moment, the 1960s and 1970s, maybe up until the early 1980s, after which point it was solidly demonized by corporate right-wing institutionalizers of jazz who emerged in the 1980s. But I think that the energies that that music embodied are reasserting themselves today because essentially in the United States, we are facing the same 
constellation of issues that we were facing in the 1960s, whether it's racism, militarism, whether it's feminism, gender equality, whether it's the environment, etc. We're still dealing with those same issues. The same battle lines are drawn in the United States today. Those energies will have to be channeled into art, including musical art, in some ways, and we're waiting to see how it manifests in this time period. This was Living Space, free jazz through the prisons of architecture and photography, part of the On Music podcast series produced by House de Cultura en der Welt, with Michael E. Veal. Music by John Coltrane, Miles Davis's Lost Quintet, George Lewis, Giannis Xenakis, and Nala Senefro. The quotes in this episode were taken from Jacques Attali, Noise, The Political Economy of Music, Fred Moten, Black and Blur, Luciana Parisi and Steve Goodman, Extensive Continuum, Towards a Rhythmic Anarchitecture, Ming Smith, An Aperture Monograph. That was on music. The podcast dedicated to in-depth engagement with the world of sound. Brought to you by Haus der Kulturen der Welt in Berlin. Narration by Sarge Lynch. Recording, production, and editing by Julia Forkefeld. Interview and script by Arno Refiner. On music sound logo by Alexandra Cardenas. By Julia Forkefeld. And additional recording by Matthias Hartenberger.